Good morning over there. This morning is a good morning. It rained all day yesterday. It's kind of nice not to have the rain this morning. I count it my joy and privilege to be here. My name is Marcy for those who are meeting me for the first time. Um, for those who know me, you know I love to be here. I love to be with you, worshiping God, our Lord. We're in the presence of our Heavenly Father, and we worship Him in company with all the host of heaven, with all the saints who have gone before us, those who are gathered around His throne. So to those friends who are at home, you know you are loved. You are not forgotten. We miss you. But we know that God is with you. His Spirit is upon you wherever you are. I pray that as you join us virtually, our oneness through the Holy Spirit will keep our hearts and minds in the joy and peace of the Lord. Let us pray. How long, O oh Lord, must we call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry. But you do not come to save. Must we forever see these evil deeds? Why must we watch all this misery? Wherever we look, we see destruction and violence. We are surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked seem to far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. And you say, the Lord... You say, Lord, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. Oh, Heavenly Father, lean down and listen to us. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your people, the people who bear your name, are in distress and disgrace. We make this plea, not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Would you stand and pray with me in song? Come, thou fount of every blessing.
take it. Here's my heart. Seal it. Seal it for the courts of heaven. Seal it here on earth. Seal it with your love. Sometimes I wonder if you, like me, struggle to find confidence and joy in the Lord. And you feel like that confidence and joy is just leaching out. You know, it's just leaking. You look for joy and then something happens and it's like you're back down in the dumps. And then what happens next is this litany of complaints begins in my heart. And I am dissatisfied with life and I'm dissatisfied with my lot in life. And it's hard to praise. Small daily hardships become hard to bear irritation, impatience, and then unkindness. And it's hard to find joy and pleasure in anything until, until I lift my eyes up and I see Jesus. I lift my eyes up and I see who God is, how awesome he is. And I find words, sometimes written a long, long, long time ago, in English that's hard to understand. But oh, when I think about it, it makes me praise. And that seals the heart. That little hole where the joy is leaking out is sealed. That little hole where irritations are getting to me is sealed. Does that work for you too? Does it work? That's why I like church. We're going to sing immortal, invisible, God only wise to this great God. Think of him, God of the universe, but beyond the universe. He contains it. He holds it in the palm of his hand. Thank you. 
seated on the throne. Thrones of the nations will fall down before him. He alone will speak and all will be silent. For all we can do is bow before him saying from age to age the same.
Good morning. Maybe seated for a moment. And as we just sang, like we have a, a great God who we get to gather together and worship and sing praise to. One of the ways we typically continue our worship is through giving back to Him, not, as Mark said, because He needs anything, but because we want to celebrate how much He has freely given us. But right now, in this season, we're not passing plates, and so we have a couple options for giving. One is to, on your way out, there will be trays on the table to your left on your way out. You can drop a gift there, or you can give online at tlefc.org. Also, this Sunday is Communion Sunday, so it's the Sunday we typically gather or take our benevolence offering to help meet the needs of those in our in our faith family in our in our community who uh, who have need. And so there'll be somebody at the door holding a tray. If you want to give to the benevolence giving specifically, you can give in the basket that the person at the door is holding on your way out. But let's pray together, Father. We we thank you for this chance to gather, for the chance to come together in this place and to sing of what a great God you are, of how much you love us, how much you care for us, how much you've done for us. And even though we hope that as we go through our week that we would, we would remind ourselves of those truths, we have a special chance in these mornings to gather together as your people to encourage each other to... Um, yeah, gather together and to praise your name. And so we pray that we would be reminded this morning how much you love us, how much you care for us. God, we pray for those in our, our church family uh, who are struggling with sickness and pain, suffering the loss of loved ones. We um, think of, especially of Bill and Nancy and the the passing of Nancy's dad, that you would bring them comfort and the rest of that family comfort and peace during this time, that you would give them an assurance of the great love you have for them. God, I pray that you would remind each of us as we navigate our way through the trials and messiness of life, that you are a God who is in control, who has a plan, who will one day make all things right. We think of missionaries and Christians overseas living in places where it's far harder than we could even fathom, that you would give them particular just a sense of your goodness, of your kindness, of your love for them, that you give them endurance. They face challenges of many kinds. God, we now continue to sing praise to you this morning. We just pray that it will come from our heart that the word will not just be words on the screen that leave our lip, but don't filter through our hearts and our mind, God, but they would be the cry of our heart, that we would sing these words to you in praise of you, that you would be glorified because of the word we sing, the word we hear. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue our time of worship.
coming to everlasting, you are God. All things will pass away, but your love and your word will stand forever. And as we sit under the teaching of your servant, Tim, we ask that, Lord, our hearts and our ears will be open to hear you. And that, Lord, the word will find fertile soil in our hearts and in our lives and bear fruit that will bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus in our homes, in this town, and in this region. And then, Lord, bear fruit to a thousand generations of those who follow you. We pray this believing and trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's good to be with you again this morning. If you're visiting or you're new, my name is Tim, one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you are here here with us, before we kind of jump into the sermon, just a couple uh, housekeeping items. Um, so one, as we kind of head into the fall, we're just kind of thinking of what the next stretch looks like. Um, so youth group will kick off this Wednesday. Um, that'll kind of get back into a regular routine. And then starting October, the first Sunday in October, we'll come back and we'll have Sunday school again, and we will... So for fun school for kids, and then we'll gather probably in here for for cross training, a sermon discussion after the service. And so we're kind of working on the final details of that, but kind of looking forward, the first Sunday in October, we'll kind of get back to a more regular and routine um, schedule in those ways. Right. So like often when I sit down to write a sermon, like, and I think about like how do I want to introduce this sermon, like what's a way to kind of engage people's attention, like. Almost without fail, the first thing that pops into my head is some kind of sports analogy. And I'm like, but I'm well aware, like, for some people, like, sports don't grab their attention. Like, I can't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me, but I gotta realize some of you, like, don't care about sports. And so I try not to rely on sports analogies every Sunday for my introduction. But given that today is football season kickoff, not counting Thursday, like, today is like the first real Sunday of football season, I thought it'd be okay to use a football Packers-based sermon introduction. So I've been a, I've been a Packer fan since, like, as long as I can remember. One of my earliest memories in all of life is like the 1993 playoff game between the Packers and the Lions when Brett Favre hit Sterling Sharp on this long touchdown pass with like 55 seconds left in the game. And that pass put the Packers in the lead. It gave them their first playoff victory in 11 years. And it started a run of success from then until now that few teams can match. I've been, I've been fortunate in my time as a Packers fan to experience pretty much only successful seasons. The only quarterbacks I've really known are Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. It's been, so it's been nice enjoying the Packers' present success. But I also remember, like, distinctly when I realized that the Packers were the best team, not just because of their present success, but also because of their past rich history. So in 2000, when I was 14 years old, 
The book, When Pride Still Mattered, book published. And the book, When Pride Still Mattered, is the biography of Vince Lombardi by David Moranis. And like at that time, like pretty much all I read was sports biographies, because I was super cool. And so like I heard the book of being published, and I like jumped in and wanted to read it. And so like before reading the book, I knew who Lombardi was. Like I knew he was this great coach. I knew they named the Super Bowl trophy after him. I was aware of him, but I didn't have a great appreciation for who he was. But this book sent me down a track of being a far bigger fan of Lombardi, being deeply interested in who Lombardi was. And one of the gifts of the Internet is that it gives us access to many video clips, many much old footage of Lombardi coaching. And so like one of the most famous clips of Lombardi coaching is like him staying on the sideline in his trench coat and fedora, and he's like clearly not impressed by what's going on until he yells, like, what's going on out there? Now he adds a couple words that I'm not gonna say because, you know, church. And like even though it feels like you shouldn't be able to get fired for quoting Lombardi in Wisconsin, no matter what he said, I don't want to push that theory too far. And so like Lombardi looks at how his team is playing. And he wonders, like, what in the world? This is not how things are supposed to be. This is not how I expected things to go. What is going on? And that question, like, what is going on out here, is essentially the question that the prophet Habakkuk asked in the book of Habakkuk. Like, Habakkuk looks around at the state of the world and he thinks, like, this is not how things are supposed to be. Like, this is not right. Like, what is going on out here? But I, like, at least Lombardi, right, he's relying on a group of fallible players. So it's kind of understandable that things aren't going perfectly. But Habakkuk is trusting in an almighty, sovereign God. So how could things be going so poorly? Like, that essentially is what this book of Habakkuk is about. Habakkuk is wrestling with God, questioning the state of the world. Habakkuk looks out the world, and he doesn't like what he sees. And like looking out at the world and not liking what you see, it's probably a feeling that many of us can relate to right now. And there's a lot we can learn, both from how Habakkuk handled his dissatisfaction and from how God responds to Habakkuk in this book. So we're going to spend the next four weeks walking through the book of Habakkuk. This is a short little book. It's only three chapters. It's only 56 verses. And like, it's kind of an obscure book. Like, I don't know like, if you're aware of the, there's this website called Sporkle. And like, you can take quizzes, and like, it'll then tell you like, what questions you got right, what questions you got wrong, and how that compares to other people. And so like, there's a quiz on there called like, the Books of the Bible Quiz. Like, so you, like, list, like, all the books of the Bible you can think of, and then it tells you how many other people who took that quiz got that answer correct. Right? And so, like, Genesis, right, like, 98% of people who took that quiz got Genesis right. right? But Habakkuk, right, the fifth fewest people answered Habakkuk on that quiz when they listed them. Like, oh, less than half the people who took that quiz knew that Habakkuk was the book in the Bible. And so, like, it's a very short, kind of obscure book, but it has a very simple structure. Like, for two chapters, we have this cycle of Habakkuk complains and God responds. And then Habakkuk complains and God responds again. 
And then in chapter 3, Habakkuk, having been put in his place, like responds with a, with a psalm of praise. So here's the plan. So this morning, I just want to give us a little bit of background information about you know, what's going on in this book. And then we'll look at Habakkuk's first complaint and God's first response. Then next week, we'll slow down a little bit and we'll kind of zoom in on Habakkuk's second complaint. And the following week, we'll look at God's second response. And in the final week of the series, we'll look at Habakkuk's psalm of praise in response to what God has revealed to him. Right, so with all that in mind, like, let's just spend a few minutes getting our heads around the historical context that Habakkuk lives in like, before we before we actually hear what he has to say. Right, so in verse 1, we read the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. That's amazing how often in the Bible somebody's name is significant. Like, Isaiah means, God is my salvation. Right? And then he prophesies about the suffering servant who will come and save God's people. Abram means exalted father. But then God makes him a promise to make him into a father of many, and he changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. Like Jesus means God is, my, God is salvation, right? which is what Gabriel commanded Mary to name him because he was going to come and save his people from their sins. Right? So names are often significant, which leads us to Habakkuk, whose name means we have no idea. Like, like our best guess is like it's from some Akkadian word, like for a certain fragrant, fragrant plant. But like, other than his name and what we read about him in this book, like we know nothing about Habakkuk. Like he's not some uniquely special borderline superhero who was specially equipped with innate abilities to, that allow him to be a prophet. He is a guy from a family so influenced by pagan culture that they use one of their words for his name. But God decides to use him anyway. And God uses him to write what I think are some of the most relevant and relatable words in all the Bible. But understand what he's writing about. We have to understand a little bit of biblical history. Like we kind of go way back right, to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis 12, we see God show up, right, seemingly out of nowhere, to this man named Abram. And God tells Abram, Go from your country your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. So God shows up to this pagan. Not because Abram did anything to deserve it, but because God decided he wanted to. He chose Abram. And so like, through a lot of events that we don't have time to jump into this morning, like God takes this one man, Abram, and he renames him Abraham, and eventually Abraham becomes this father of many, and this many grows into the nation of Israel. In the history of Israel, the nation is pretty up and down, right? but mostly down. Right? Like they follow God for a little while, and things go well. So then they think, ooh, like we have everything under control. Like, so we can forget about God, we can go do our own thing. Right? So then God punishes them, usually by having them fall into the hands of some enemy. And eventually they cry out to God for help, and because he loves them, God rescues them from that enemy. And then things start to go well again. The whole cycle repeats itself. And eventually, in one of these periods of rebellion, Israel divides into two nations. 
And we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And from the time of that split onward, things go very poorly for Israel. But they never return back to God. They continue to do wicked things and they rebel against God. So God sent prophet after prophet to them, warning them, pleading with them, like, if you don't repent and turn back to God, God is going to judge you. But they don't turn back. They don't listen. So that's exactly what happens. God raises up the Assyrians and they invade Israel and like Assyrians just utterly destroy Israel. So Judah, after the split, on the other hand, they're a little more up and down. Like they're wicked most of the time, but every once in a while they would have a good king who would turn the people back to God. And because of that, like God doesn't judge Judah at the same time he judges Assyria. Like they get a little more time. Like he's still not pleased with Judah and how they are often acting wickedly, but they get a little more time. So he sends more prophet to them. And like the most notable little prophet being Jeremiah. And he tells them, like, if you don't turn to me, I'm going to do the same thing to you that I did to Israel. And that's where Habakkuk enters the story. And Habakkuk is entering from Judah after Judah and Israel had split, like, after God has sent the Assyrians to wipe out Israel. So like, we can't pinpoint for sure when Habakkuk is writing. But like, most likely... It seems Habakkuk is writing shortly after the death of King Josiah. And Josiah, he's like the last good king of Israel, of Judah. Like he led this great reformation in Judah. Like he helped turn the people away from their wickedness and back to God. And things were looking good under Josiah's reign. But then Judah gets into a war with Egypt. And Josiah, being the king... He could have just stayed in his palace, or he could have led from the back like most kings would do. But he didn't do that. He desired to fight alongside his people. And so he like, disguises himself as that regular, average, everyday soldier, and he joins the battle. But in the course of that battle, he gets shot by archers, and he dies. And as a result, like, after a power struggle, and a few short-term kings, like his son, Jehoiakim, takes the throne... And Jehoiakim is unlike Josiah in every way. He's corrupt and he's evil and he quickly leads the country away from God. And so it seems most likely that Habakkuk's writing during the time of Jehoiakim. Like he had seen things start to look up under Josiah's reign. And he must have thought, like, finally, God is at work. He is bringing revival to our land. Like things are finally looking up. And then, one well-placed arrow in a battle Josiah didn't need to be fighting in brings it all to an end. And in his place, brings a king who is evil and utterly opposed to God. And Habakkuk looks out and he says, God, what are you doing? What is going on out here? Let's read the exact words. In Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through 4, he says this. He says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is, there is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed 
and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. So here we get, this is Habakkuk's like first complaint. And Habakkuk's complaint is that God is not punishing the people in Judah who are rebelling against him. And he says, the law is paralyzed, justice never prevails, and the wicked hem in the righteous. Like Habakkuk looks out at the people of Judah, and he sees people everywhere acting wickedly. And he's like, God, why would you do something? And if Habakkuk only complained about the people who are being unrighteous, he'd be in, he'd be in good company. Like we love to complain about people who are doing the wrong thing. We love to complain about people who are living less moral lives than us, don't we? Like, it gives like a favorite human pastime to look at the lives of others and to judge them and to complain about how they're living. Sometimes we even sneak those complaints into prayer. Like, God, I just want to pray for so-and-so right now. Like, you know he's rude and he's judgmental and he's arrogant. And like, I just pray that you would reveal his sin to him. Like, we just kind of, we sneak that complaint into prayer. But that's not what Habakkuk does. He says, in verse 2, like, How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence. But you do not save. Habakkuk's complaint is not primarily about the fact that others are sinning, right? but about the fact that God isn't doing anything about it. Right? And like, here's the thing. In our heart of hearts, we all have moments where we don't like what we see going on in the world. We don't understand why certain things are happening. But if we're being really honest with ourselves, like it's it's kind of hard to believe that God is really active and God really cared about what is going on. So the question then is, like, in those moments, when you have those moments of questioning and doubt, what do you do with them? Like, if you're like me, like, my first reaction is typically to do like, just everything I kind of push those thoughts out of my mind. Just like, if I just don't dwell on them, then they won't be real. I even have this like, default list of topics in my brain that I go to whenever I find myself thinking thoughts that I don't like. Like Usually it's like think about the last good sports thing that happened and I just dwell on that for a while. And like, when nothing good sports-wise has happened in a while, then I'm in trouble. But, like, but like, that's what I do. I just like, push the thought out of my brain and like, think about something else. But Habakkuk doesn't do that. He says, destruction and violence are before me. That there is strife and conflict abounds. And he doesn't say, uh, so I'm going to go think about sports now. Like, which is what I do. Right? But he says, like, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate un- wrongdoing? Like, Habakkuk goes to God. And he's honest about what is going on inside his heart. And if we aren't willing to do the same thing, if we aren't willing to be honest with God about our feelings, when we think about what's going on in the world, like, we run the risk of getting ourselves into real spiritual trouble. If we feel like we need to act like everything is okay all the time, if we feel the need like we have to suppress concern and fear and doubts, right, one of a couple things could happen. 
Like one is that instead of taking our concern to God, like we lash out at other people. We blame them for the problems we see in the world. We see this a lot currently with COVID. Like, whether, no matter what you think of COVID, like nobody likes what's going on. Right? Like, either you don't like the disease itself or you don't like the effects on the economy. Like, nobody likes what's being caused, what's going on with COVID. Right? But because we are finite humans, right? there's not much we can do about viruses and global economies. Right? So what do most of us do? Like, we don't go to God and ask Habakkuk. Like, we don't say, like, how long, Lord? Like, why are you allowing this to happen? Instead, we fight. We lash out other people for how they respond to the situation instead of bringing our concerns to the one who is in control of the situation. That's one harmful result, that we just fight with other people instead of bringing our concerns to God. The other, like even more harmful result, is that if we continue to bury our fears and our doubts and our concerns, then until there's one too many things to bury, and we just give it all up and we say, like, look at all this stuff. Like, God must not be in control. God must not really be sovereign. And if he's not really in control, if he's not really sovereign, then he's not really God. And there's no point in following him. And then, like, there's a true crisis of faith that comes if we keep burying our worries and our doubt for too long. Like, I don't want us at the church to be a people who fight over small things because we don't like the state of big things. And I desperately don't want any of us to become so disenchanted with the state of the world that we would walk away from the faith. So please, when things are hard, when you don't like the state of the world, when you don't like the way things are going in your life, like don't bury your concerns. Don't try to just grin and bear it but be like Habakkuk and run to God. Tell him your heart. Tell him your concern. Tell him your complaints. And the good news is, like, nothing you say is going to catch God off guard. And it's not going to cause God to chastise you. Like, Habakkuk says, how long do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? And, like, God doesn't say like, he doesn't say, like, gee, Habakkuk, I had no idea you felt that way. Like, but now that you do, like, how dare you? Like, he doesn't say that. Instead, God responds by saying this. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am doing something in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. 
Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. And so God responds to Habakkuk's complaint. But it's not at all the response that Habakkuk was expecting. God starts out by saying, like, Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed. For I am doing something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And if God had just stopped right there, I think Habakkuk would have thought, Awesome. God is going to act. He's probably going to bring revival to our land. He has, like, he has, like he has other times in our history. People are going to turn back to God. I can't wait to see what God is going to do. But God doesn't stop there. God keeps talking. And all of Habakkuk's notions about what God is going to do go up in smoke. God says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people they are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. So basically God's saying, like, you're right, Habakkuk. The people of Judah are wicked and in need of judgment. And I am going to judge them. I'm going to use wicked, evil Babylon as an instrument of judgment against Judah. Let that sink in. God is going to use a notoriously wicked, evil, violent, pagan people to judge his own chosen people. And next week we'll see Habakkuk's second complaint. And Habakkuk says, like, whoa, God, like, that's not what I meant. Like, let's not go crazy here. Like, like, I know there are some wicked people in Judah, but they're nothing compared to the Babylonians. Like, those guys are really bad. We're not that bad. But God is well aware of who the Babylonians are. He calls them that ruthless and impetuous people. They are a feared and dreaded people. God knows exactly who the Babylonians are. He knows exactly what he is doing. And while he doesn't chastise Habakkuk for his complaint, he does call Habakkuk to trust that God is sovereign and in control even when it seems to make absolutely zero sense. God has a far bigger view of history than we do. We humans tend to be very time-bound creatures. It seems the only things that have happened in the last 15 minutes have any significance to us. Depending on the study, between 40 and 60% of Americans have nothing saved for retirement. We overeat, we overspend, we overindulge in any number of ways, knowing it's going to make us feel worse in the long run, but not caring because it feels good right now. We are terrible at thinking about thinking beyond what seems most pressing in the moment. But luckily, God is not like this. God sees all of history from beginning to end. And because he does that, we can be confident that whatever takes place will achieve his purposes. God tells Habakkuk that he's going to do a work in his days that Habakkuk would not believe if he were told. And the reason Habakkuk couldn't believe it, wouldn't believe it, is that like, 
Habakkuk doesn't have the same long-term vision that God has. He can't see how God is going to achieve his purposes through a Babylonian conquest. With short-sighted, like now-focused vision, it really is unbelievable that God would allow his chosen people to be conquered by a wicked people like the Babylonians. But like, what Habakkuk couldn't see was that after the Babylonians came and they conquered Judah, they would carry them off to exile. Well, then the Babylonians themselves would be conquered by the Persians. And the Persians allowed the Babylonians, some of them, to return to their homeland in Israel. And the people of Israel lived in Israel then under foreign ruler for many years. And eventually, like the foreign ruler who ruled Israel would be the Romans. Like in two people who lived in Israel under Roman rule, were a couple named Mary and Joseph. And they would give birth to a son named Jesus. And this Jesus would become a leader of the Jewish people. And in fact, he'd be such a good leader that these short-sighted, now-focused Jewish people would expect him to be their Messiah by leading a military revolution against the Romans. But this Jesus is God incarnate. He does not follow along with these short-sighted plans. Jesus knows that the only way for the problem, the problem of injustice that Habakkuk is complaining about, that the only way for that problem to be conquered and dealt with once and for all is for him to die on a cross to defeat Satan and sin and death. Only then will the things that Habakkuk is complaining about be dealt with in a way that lasts forever. Like, we should be glad that God didn't answer Habakkuk the way Habakkuk would prefer, would have preferred. We should be glad that Jesus was not a human Messiah whose purpose was to lead a military revolution against the Romans. God had a much better plan. And God's plan was better because God's view of history is infinitely bigger than ours. People could not see God's plan when they were on the brink of it in Jesus' day. And they definitely could not see it in Habakkuk's day. So like the lesson here is that it's not, it's not wrong to ask the type of questions Habakkuk asked. It's not wrong to wonder why God is allowing certain things to happen when they look bleak. Like, but the road forward, like the road to a more robust faith on the other side of those questions it paved with the word, I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. Our minds are too finite to ever grasp how God is using the evil things of this world to bring about his purposes. And if God told us how he was going to do it, we still wouldn't believe. But the glorious truth of this passage is that God is at work. And someday the end of history, when we're together with him in the new heavens and the new earth, we will see that God has brought about all his purposes. And it will be glorious. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are all-knowing and all-powerful and perfectly good. 
God, we praise you that even when we can't understand, we can't grasp what's going on in the world, why certain things are happening, that you have a plan. That you will bring about all of your good purposes in your good timing. God, we can't always see it. We don't always understand it. God, help us to trust it. God, as we, we wrestle with doubts and concerns, pray that we would be bold in bringing them to you, knowing that you already know the deepest thoughts of our heart, that nothing we say is going to catch you off guard. We can come to you the way Habakkuk did. He will hear our prayers. He will hear our concerns. He will hear our worries. I pray that you bring those to you, that you would gently and lovingly remind us of your goodness, of your sovereignty, of your care for us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion together now. So if you do not grab a communion cup on your way, um, and there's some in the back, I'd invite you to go, go grab one of those. Um, so like, at the ultimate work, we just said, that the ultimate way that God works in a way that we would not believe is that he sent his one and only son to earth. That his son lived a perfect, sinless life. But even though he lived that perfect, sinless life, he was put to death on the cross like a criminal. And on that cross, he takes on the sins of everyone who believes in him. And God pours out his wrath against sin on his own son instead of us. That is a work that would be truly unbelievable if it hadn't happened. But it did happen. We had the opportunity through communion this morning to remember what God did for us in Jesus. When we eat the bread, when we drink the juice, we're reminded that that despite what Habakkuk thought, God did care about the sin and injustice going on around him. And in fact, he, he cared so much that he sacrificed his beloved son to provide a way for that injustice to be dealt with. So with that in mind, let's take the bread. Now the night... And then he was betrayed. Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Partake. Father, thank you for your reminder of your goodness to us. Thank you that you remind us through this tangible means that Jesus died when he was crucified for us that our sins can be forgiven. I pray now as we sing that we just be reminded of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.
depart from this place. My prayer and my hope that you would go in the confidence that God hears you when you cry out to Him, even when you when you aren't sure what's going on in the world, that He responds, that He has a perfectly good plan. I pray that you go trusting that plan. You are dismissed.
with me.